This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Today's podcast is a reading of The Monkey's Paw by W.W. Jacobs. It's read by Mr. Jim Moon for his Hypnagoria podcast. It runs 29 minutes, and we will be discussing it afterward. The Monkey's Paw by W.W. Jacobs Be careful what you wish for. You may receive it. Anonymous Part 1 Without, the night was cold and wet, but in the small parlour of Laburnum Villa, the blinds were drawn and the fire burned brightly. Father and son were at chess. The former, who possessed ideas about the game involving radical chances, putting his king into such sharp and unnecessary perils, that it even provoked comment from the white-haired old lady knitting placidly by the fire. "'Hark at the wind,' said Mr. White, who, having seen a fatal mistake after it was too late, was amiably desirous of preventing his son from seeing it. "'I'm listening,' the latter said grimly, surveying the board as he stretched out his hand. "'Check.' "'I should hardly think that he's come to-night.' said his father, with his hand poised over the board. Mate, replied the son. That's the worst of living so far out, bawled Mr. White with sudden and unlooked-for violence. Of all the beastly, slushy, out-of-the-way places to live in, this is the worst. Paths are bog, and the roads are torrent. I don't know what people are thinking about. I suppose because only two houses in the road are let, they think it doesn't matter. Never mind, dear, said his wife soothingly. Perhaps you'll win the next one. Mr. White looked up sharply, just in time to intercept a knowing glance between mother and son. The words died away on his lips, and he hid a guilty grin in his thin grey beard. There he is, said Herbert White, as the gate banged too loudly and heavy footsteps came towards the door. The old man rose with hospitable haste, and, opening the door, was heard condoling with the new arrival. The new arrival also condoled with himself, so that Mrs. White said, "'Tut, tut!' and coughed gently as her husband entered the room, followed by a tall, burly man, beady of eye, and rubicond of visage. "'Sergeant Major Morris,' he said, introducing him. The sergeant-major took hands, and, taking the proffered seat by the fire, watched contentedly as his host got out whisky and tumblers, and stood a small copper kettle on the fire. At the third glass his eyes got brighter, and he began to talk, the little family circle regarding with eager interest this visitor from distant parts, as he squared his broad shoulders in the chair and spoke of wild scenes and doughty deeds, of wars and plagues and strange peoples. Twenty-one years of it,' said Mr. White, nodding at his wife and son. "'When he went away he was a slip of a youth in the warehouse. Now look at him. 
"'He doesn't look to have taken much harm,' said Mrs. White politely. "'I'd like to go to India myself,' said the old man. "'Just to look around a bit, you know.' "'Better where you are,' said the sergeant-major, shaking his head. He put down the empty glass and, sighing softly, shook it again. "'I should like to see those old tempers and fakirs and jugglers,' said the old man. "'What was that you started telling me the other day about a monkey's paw or something, Morris?' "'Nothing,' said the soldier hastily. "'Leastways nothing worth hearing.' "'Monkey's paw?' said Mrs. White curiously. "'Well, it's just a bit of what you might call magic, perhaps,' said the sergeant-major offhandedly. His three listeners leaned forward eagerly. The visitor absent-mindedly put his empty glass to his lips and set it down again. His host filled it for him again. "'To look at,' said the sergeant-major, fumbling in his pocket, "'it's just an ordinary little paw, dried to a mummy.' He took something out of his pocket and proffered it. Mrs. White drew back with a grimace, but her son, taking it, examined it curiously. "'And what is there special about it?' inquired Mr. White, as he took it from his son, and, having examined it, placed it upon the table. "'It had a spell put on it by an old fakir,' said the sergeant-major, "'a very holy man. He wanted to show that fate ruled people's lives, and those who interfered with it did so to their sorrow. He put a spell on it, so that three separate men could each have three wishes from it.' His manners were so impressive that his hearers were conscious that their light laughter had jarred somehow. "'Well, why don't you have three, sir?' said Herbert White cleverly. The soldier regarded him the way that middle age is wont to regard presumptuous youth. "'I have,' he said quietly, and his blotchy face whitened. "'And did you really have three wishes granted?' asked Mrs. White. "'I did,' said the sergeant-major, and his glass tapped against his strong teeth. "'And has anyone else wished?' persisted the old lady. "'The first man had his three wishes, yes,' was the reply. "'I don't know what the first two were, but the third was for death. "'That's how I got the paw.' His tones were so grave that a hush fell upon the group. "'If you've had your three wishes, it's no good to you now, then, Morris,' said the old man at last. "'What do you keep it for?' The soldier shook his head. "'Fancy, I suppose,' he said slowly. "'I did have the idea of selling it, but I don't think I will. "'It has caused me enough mischief already. "'Besides, people won't buy. "'They think it's a fairy tale.' some of them, and those who do think anything of it want to try it first and pay me afterward. "'If you could have another three wishes,' said the old man, eyeing him keenly, "'would you have them?' "'I don't know,' said the other. "'I don't know.' He took the paw, and, dangling it between his forefinger and thumb, suddenly threw it upon the fire. White, with a slight cry, "'stooped down and snatched it off. "'Better let it burn,' said the soldier solemnly. "'If you don't want it, Morris,' said the other, 
Give it to me. I won't, said his friend doggedly. I threw it on the fire. If you keep it, don't blame me for what happens. Pitch it on the fire like a sensible man. The other shook his head and examined his possession closely. How do you do it? he inquired. Hold it in your right hand and wish aloud, said the sergeant major. But I warn you of the consequences. Sounds like the Arabian Nights, said Mrs. White, as she rose and began to set supper. Don't you think you might wish for four pairs of hands for me? Her husband drew the talisman from his pocket, and all three burst into laughter, as the sergeant major, with a look of alarm on his face, caught him by the arm. If you must wish, he said gruffly, wish for something sensible. Mr. White dropped it back into his pocket, and, placing chairs, motioned his friend to the table. In the business of supper, the talisman was partly forgotten, and afterward, the three sat listening, in an enthralled manner, to a second instalment of the soldiers' adventures in India. If the tale about the monkey's paw is not more truthful than those he's been telling us, said Herbert, as the door closed behind their guest, just in time to catch the last train, we shan't make much out of it. Did you give anything for it, father? inquired Mrs. White, regarding her husband closely. A trifle, said he, colouring slightly. He didn't want it, but I made him take it, and he pressed me again to throw it away. Likely, said Herbert, with pretended horror. Why, we're going to be rich and famous and happy. Wish to be an emperor, father, to begin with. Then you can't be henpecked. He darted round the table, pursued by the maligned Mrs. White, armed with an antimacassar. Mr. White took the paw from his pocket and eyed it dubiously. I don't know what to wish for, and that's a fact, he said slowly. Seems to me I've got all I want. If only you cleared the house, you'd be quite happy, wouldn't you? said Herbert, with his hand on his shoulder. Well, wish for two hundred pounds, then. That'll just do it. His father, smiling shamefacedly at his own credulity, held up the talisman as his son, with a solemn face, somewhat marred by a wink at his mother, sat down and struck a few impressive chords. "'I wish for two hundred pounds,' said the old man distinctly. A fine crash from the piano greeted his words, interrupted by a shuddering cry from the old man. His wife and son ran towards him. "'It moved!' he cried, with a glance of disgust at the object as it lay on the floor. As I wished, it twisted in my hand like a snake. Well, I don't see the money, said his son, and he picked it up and placed it on the table. And I bet I never shall. It must have been your fancy, father, said his wife, regarding him anxiously. He shook his head. Never mind, though, there's no harm done. But it gave me a shock all the same. They sat down by the fire again, while the two men finished their pipes. Outside the wind was higher than ever, and the old man started nervously at the sound of a door banging upstairs. A silence unusual and depressing settled on all three, which lasted until the old couple rose to retire for the rest of the night. 
I expect you'll find the cash tied up in a big bag in the middle of your bed, said Herbert, as he bade them good night. And seeing something horrible squatting on the top of your wardrobe, watching you as you pocket your ill-gotten gains. He sat alone in the darkness, gazing at the dying fire, and seeing faces in it. The last was so horrible and so simian that he gazed at it in amazement. It got so vivid that, with a little uneasy laugh, he felt on the table for a glass containing a little water to throw over it. His hand grasped the monkey's paw, and, with a little shiver, he wiped his hand on his coat and went up to bed. Part 2 In the brightness of the wintry sun next morning, as it streamed over the breakfast table, he laughed at his fears. There was an air of prosaic wholesomeness about the room, which it had lacked on the previous night, and the dirty, shriveled little paw was pitched on the sideboard with a carelessness which betokened no great belief in its virtues. "'I suppose all old soldiers are the same,' said Mrs. White. "'The idea of our listening to such nonsense. How could wishes be granted in these days? And if they could?' "'How could two hundred pounds hurt you, father?' "'Might drop on his head from the sky,' said the frivolous Herbert. "'Morris said these things happened so naturally,' said his father, "'that you might, if you so wished, attribute it to coincidence.' "'Well, don't break into the money before I come back,' said Herbert, as he rose from the table. "'I'm afraid it'll turn you into a mean, avaricious man, and we shall have to disown you.' His mother laughed and followed him to the door, watching him down the road, and returning to the breakfast-table, was very happy at the expense of her husband's credulity, all of which did not prevent her from scurrying to the door at the postman's knock, nor prevent her from referring somewhat shortly to retired sergeant-majors of bibulous habits when she found that the post brought a tailor's bill. "'Herbert will have some more of his funny remarks, I expect, when he comes home,' she said as they sat at dinner. "'I dare say,' said Mr. White, pouring himself out some beer. "'But for all that, the thing moved in my hand. That I'll swear to.' "'You thought it did?' said the old lady soothingly. "'I say it did,' replied the other. "'There was no thought about it. I've just had—' "'What's the matter?' His wife made no reply. She was watching the mysterious movements of a man outside, who, peering in an undecided fashion at the house, appeared to be trying to make up his mind to enter. In mental connection with the two hundred pounds, she noticed that the stranger was well-dressed, and wore a silk hat of glossy newness. Three times he paused at the gate, and then walked on again. The fourth time he stood with his hand upon it, and then, with a sudden resolution, flung it open and walked up the path. Mrs. White, at the same moment, placed her hands behind her, and, hurriedly unfastening the strings of her apron, put that useful article of apparel beneath the cushion of her chair. She brought the stranger, who seemed ill at ease, into the room. He gazed at her furtively, and listened in a preoccupied fashion as the old lady apologised for the appearance of the room, and her husband's coat, 
a garment which she usually reserved for the garden. She then waited as patiently as her sex would permit for him to broach his business. But he was at first strangely silent. I was asked to call, he said at last, and stooped and picked a piece of cotton from his trousers. I come from Moore and Meggins. The old lady started. Is anything the matter? she asked breathlessly. Has anything happened to Herbert? What is it? What is it? Her husband interposed. There, there, mother, he said hastily. Sit down and don't jump to conclusions. You've not brought bad news, I'm sure, sir. And eyed the other wistfully. I'm sorry, began the visitor. Is he hurt? demanded the mother wildly. The visitor bowed in assent. Badly hurt, he said quietly. But he's not in any pain. Oh, thank God! said the old woman, clasping her hands. Thank God for that! Thank! She broke off as the sinister meaning of the assurance dawned on her, and she saw the awful confirmation of her fears in the other's averted face. She caught her breath, and, turning to her slower-witted husband, laid her trembling hand on his. There was a long silence. He was caught in the machinery, said the visitor at length in a low voice. Caught in the machinery? repeated Mr. White in a dazed fashion. Yes. He sat staring out of the window and taking his wife's hand between his own, pressed it as he had been wont to do in their old courting days nearly forty years before. He was the only one left to us, he said, turning gently to the visitor. It is hard. The other coughed, and rising, walked slowly to the window. The firm wishes me to convey their sincere sympathy with you in your great loss, he said, without looking round. I beg that you will understand I am only their servant and merely obeying orders. There was no reply. The old woman's face was white, her eyes staring, and her breath inaudible. On her husband's face was a look such as his friend the sergeant might have carried into his first action. I was to say that Moore and Meggins disclaim all responsibility, continued the other. They admit no liability at all, but in consideration of your son's services, they wish to present you with a certain sum of compensation. Mr. White dropped his wife's hand and rising to his feet, gazed with a look of horror at his visitor. His dry lips shaped the words. How much? Two hundred pounds, was the answer. Unconscious of his wife's shriek, the old man smiled faintly, put out his hands like a sightless man, and dropped a senseless heap to the floor. Part 3 in the huge new cemetery, some two miles distant, the old people buried their dead, and came back to the house, steeped in shadows and silence. It was all over so quickly 
that at first they could hardly realize it, and remained in a state of expectation, as though of something else to happen, something else which was to lighten this load, too heavy for old hearts to bear. But the days passed, and expectations gave way to resignation, the hopeless resignation of the old, sometimes miscalled apathy. Sometimes they hardly exchanged a word, for now they had nothing to talk about, and their days were long to weariness. It was about a week after that the old man, waking suddenly in the night, stretched out his hand and found himself alone. The room was in darkness, and the sound of subdued weeping came from the window. He raised himself in bed and listened. Come back, he said tenderly. You will be cold. It is colder for my son, said the old woman, and wept afresh. The sound of her sobs died away on his ears. The bed was warm, and his eyes heavy with sleep. He dozed fitfully, and then slept until a sudden wild cry from his wife awoke him with a start. The paw! she cried wildly. The monkey's paw! He started up in alarm. Where? Where is it? What's the matter? She came stumbling across the room toward him. I want it, she said quietly. You've not destroyed it? It's in the parlour on the bracket, he replied, marvelling. Why? She cried and laughed together, and, bending over, kissed his cheek. I only just thought of it, she said hysterically. Why didn't I think of it before? Why didn't you think of it? Think of what? he questioned. The other two wishes, she replied rapidly. We've only had one. Was that not enough? he demanded fiercely. No, she cried triumphantly. We'll have one more. Go down and get it quickly, and wish our boy alive again. The man sat in bed and flung the bedclothes from his quaking limbs. Good God, you are mad, he cried aghast. Get it, she panted. Get it quickly and wish. Oh, my boy, my boy! Her husband struck a match and lit the candle. Get back to bed, he said unsteadily. You don't know what you're saying. We had the first wish granted, said the old woman, feverishly. Why not the second? A coincidence, stammered the old man. Go get it and wish, cried his wife, quivering with excitement. The old man turned and regarded her and his voice shook. He has been dead ten days, and besides, he— I would not tell you else, but I could only recognize him by his clothing. It was too terrible for you to see then. How now? Bring him back, cried the old woman, and dragged him towards the door. Do you think I fear the child I have nursed? He went down in the darkness and felt his way to the parlour, and then to the mantelpiece. The talisman was in its place, and a horrible fear that the unspoken wish might bring his mutilated son before him 
ere he could escape from the room, seized up on him, and he caught his breath as he found he had lost the direction of the door. His brow cold with sweat, he felt his way round the table and groped along the wall until he found himself in the small passage with the unwholesome thing in his hand. Even his wife's face seemed changed as he entered the room. It was white and expectant, and to his fears seemed to have an unnatural look upon it. He was afraid of her. Wish! she cried in a strong voice. It is foolish and wicked, he faltered. Wish! repeated his wife. He raised his hand. I wish my son alive again. The talisman fell to the floor, and he regarded it fearfully. Then he sank trembling into a chair as the old woman with burning eyes walked to the window and raised the blind. He sat until he was chilled with the cold, glancing occasionally at the figure of the old woman peering through the window. The candle-end, which had burned below the rim of the china candlestick, was throwing pulsating shadows on the ceilings and walls, until, with a flicker larger than the rest, it expired. The old man, with an unspeakable sense of relief at the failure of the talisman, crept back to his bed, and a minute afterward the old woman came silently and apathetically beside him. Neither spoke, but sat silently listening to the ticking of the clock. A stair creaked, and a squeaky mouse scurried noisily through the wall. The darkness was oppressive, and after lying for some time, screwing up his courage, he took the box of matches, and striking one, went downstairs for a candle. At the foot of the stairs the match went out, and he paused to strike another, and at the same moment a knock came, so quiet and stealthy as to be scarcely audible, sounded on the front door. The matches fell from his hand and spilled in the passage. He stood motionless, his breath suspended until the knock was repeated. He then turned and fled swiftly back to his room, and closed the door behind him. A third knock sounded through the house. "'What's that?' cried the old woman, starting up. "'A rat,' said the old man in shaking tones. "'A rat. It passed me on the stairs.' His wife sat up in bed listening. A loud knock resounded through the house. "'It's Herbert!' She ran to the door, but her husband was before her, and, catching her by the arm, held her tightly. "'What are you going to do?' he whispered hoarsely. "'It's my boy! It's Herbert!' she cried, struggling mechanically. "'I forgot it was two miles away. What are you holding me for? Let go! I must open the door!' "'For God's sake, don't let it in!' cried the old man, trembling. You're afraid of your own son, she cried, struggling. Let me go. I'm coming, Herbert. I'm coming. There was another knock, and another. The old woman with a sudden wrench broke free and ran from the room. 
Her husband followed to the landing, and called after her appealingly as she hurried downstairs. He heard the chain rattle back and the bolt drawn slowly and stiffly from the socket. Then the old woman's voice, strained and panting. The bolt, she cried loudly. Come down, I can't reach it. But her husband was on his hands and knees, groping wildly on the floor in search of the paw. If only he could find it before the thing outside got in. A perfect fusillade of knocks reverberated through the house, and he heard the scraping of a chair as his wife put it down in the passage against the door. He heard the creaking of the bolt as it came back slowly, and at the same moment he found the monkey's paw and frantically breathed his third and last wish. The knocking ceased suddenly, although the echoes of it were still in the house. He heard the chair drawn back and the door opened. A cold wind rushed up the staircase, and a long, loud wail of disappointment and misery from his wife gave him the courage to run down to her side, and then to the gate beyond. The street lamp flickering opposite shone on a quiet and deserted road. Hi, I'm Jesse. I am Paul. I am Jim. Hi, I'm Julie from A Good Story is Hard to Find podcast. Hi, I'm Misa. Oh, and we're done. <laughs> I was thinking, there's got to be like three or four more people here. Um, Miss, uh, Mr. White and Mrs. White and their son Herbert are here. And a mysterious stranger from India. Uh, we're reading The Monkey's Paw, or Mr. Jim Moon has just read for us, The Monkey's Paw by W.W. Jacobs. First published in a magazine, not in the book, in, I believe it was September 1902. Might have been earlier, a little, little earlier than that. Let me look. Uh, yep, September 1902, Harper's Monthly. Um, but I want you to note, I hope everybody has a look at the picture, that the illustration, which is by somebody named Maurice Griffin Hagen, Maurice Griffin Hagen is dated 1900, which is very what? interesting. Yes, and I was looking at that last digit and saying, "Oh, it's got to be, it's got to be a two or a one," but no, it's even zero zero 1900. So I don't know. That's interesting. I know. Like, what was this sitting in? You know, did it get commissioned in 1900 when the story? You know, it obviously came out before it was written before it came out. But two uh, I read years. it was rejected first by, I think, Strand Magazine or something. What? I never heard yes! that. Yes! Well, well, I read it. Wow. may not be true, but I read it. So it could have been kicking around for a little bit first. I can see why it would have been rejected by the Strand, because it's, it's very different from what you get in a Strand. That, that's what they said. It was too too morbid. It's not morbid at all. Well, well maybe well, it is. Sad. Oh, well, I mean, Wait a minute. Not exactly. What world are you in? <laughs> okay. Well, I don't want to. I don't want to tap. You know, give my whole th ex elaborate explanation how it's a naturalistic story. How well, it's uplifting and I'll <laughs> be super happy. Well, I, I, don't, I don't feel know. that's where we were left. In the grand scheme of things, everything's fine. <laughs> um, well, it's certainly possibly at the time be seen out of character for Jacobs. 
because he, he's better known and I mean, he's remembered mm. for the monkey's paw. But if you look at most of his books, they're um, comic tales, usually about sailors and boating. And um, it's in the book it appears in. It's full of other stories about boats and chaps having a fun time at the docks and messing about on the water. And so, but occasionally you like to tell a spooky tale. And I imagine the Stradman thought, this, is, this isn't really what we want from you, Jacobs. Yeah. <laughs> this is, this might, we're expecting a, a laugh. laugh and we, yeah. I, I, I think it is really funny, actually. Um, the, the characterization of the family before things take sort of a dark twist is perfect. Um, the mm-hmm. the father is, is like a fool, kind of, but in a nice way. And he's also knowing that he's kind of a fool. And the son is so... Uh, he's so teasing, well, and it, it almost they're like joking around. Yeah, he neutralizes all the sort of horror of like blame and stuff that would come later. If in a normal situation, right? Like, the, there is no blame between the husband and the wife later on, and 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 the wife is very um, uh, she's she's meta, right? She's she uh, she says she says it's something out of the Arabian Nights. And, mm-hmm. and and then uh, the son says, um, uh, you should wish to be an emperor, father. Uh, you, then you won't be so henpecked. <laughs> and the wife <laughs> yeah, starts chasing the son around the room, right? With, <laughs> with the, uh, I had to look it up. Uh, the, uh, it, it's a um, something, it's a it's a lace doily, the anti-Makassar. Basically, uh, yes. something to keep yeah. part of your cl- your. Your lazy boy clean, I guess, or make it look pretty. Well, it goes back to the days where all the men wore hair gel. Oh, God. Um, <laughs> well, hair oil, as it were. And literally had these lace doilies so that when gentlemen sat down on the city or the armchairs, they, they wouldn't leave actually a stain from oh, their hair. Oh, That's what? Yeah, because I had no idea. Mm. Armchairs had really high mm. backs. So the men's heads would naturally hit them a lot of the time. They, and they wore smoking jackets so that they don't get their uh, their clothes stinky. And then they wore those fezes to keep their hair from getting stinky, right? From the, all the smoking. That's right, yes, yeah. Isn't that weird? Yeah. Like, there's all this It's not just cool fashions. It was no. All, it was all practical. <laughs> the smoking jacket is cool literally could, something you way. put on to keep your, your clothes from becoming disgustingly uh, tobacco-y, smoky. Huh. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, and you don't. Uh, that's why the fez too, right? Because it you don't need a brim, <laughs> right? Inside, it's just to keep the hair from be, like your wife saying, "Oh my God, you stink like tobacco burnt, <laughs> grossness." Um, so well, and there would have been so many other smells you were already dealing with. You had the fires and the food preparation, even though it was in another room or wherever. Another so house all sometimes. these, yeah. and yourself. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and they're well, not yeah. having six showers a day, right? Yeah. I mean, they might have a bath every day, maybe, or once a week. Maybe. I don't know. And also, you get attuned to that stuff some, but if you can't bring in the new things, that helps, I would think. But the characterization in here is, is actually really funny until it sort of takes that dark turn, right? <laughs> well, that's what makes it so poignant because you get to see what a happy, loving family they are mm-hmm. and... The son is lighthearted, but he also just adds another element of company and the outside world because they say early on that they're in a, it sounds like a undeveloped neighborhood, like they're on the outskirts. So maybe this is what they did to try and save some money. I mean, I don't know. That would just be guessing, but it's, they're very isolated. 
And so the son's not only adding his youth, he's bringing, you know, the stories from work and, you know, just like any happy family unit, of course. So that's, we're shown that in enough small sketches, which really shows his skill. He is fleshing out these people for the most part so that we feel it when the tragedy happens. I I got a a few other interesting facts. Uh, You might have many others, but... Uh, I, I, wanna, I think I've used up my interesting fact. <laughs> oh, oh, you're one interesting. Okay, well, I got another interesting fact. This is it's in the first sentence, right? Um, so, Mr. Jim Moon's version. I, I'm listening to it after having just read the paper version, and it's different. Uh, this is this first sentence in the one I've got, which is from the magazine. Without the night was cold and wet, but in the small parlor of Lakesnam Villa, the br- blinds were drawn and the fire burned brightly. In all no. subsequent publications, it's not Lakesnam. It's, it's Laburnum. Laburnum. And I have no idea why that was that change was made. But it is in the magazine edition, which is slightly before the paper book version, which has the same illustration, by the way, um, which is in The Lady of the Barge, I think it's called. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. And uh, yeah. it, it has a bunch of other illustrations by the same artist, but none of them are for the monkey's paw. They're all f- so. I, I think what happened is it was going to be published in the book. Then he sold one of the stories to. I mean, some of them were actually published uh, previously as well, um, but all the illustrations were done. And then he sold this story, I guess, because he could. Um, and, and who knows? What? How long it takes to get a book of short stories published back then? But he he was well known enough, I guess, to to justify it. But why the why the change? What? Uh, as somebody pointed out, um, laburnum sounds like a real thing. <laughs> I think I've heard that somewhere else. Whereas, it's, it's a tree, laburnum. There you go. Whereas yeah, a lakesnum, yeah. what the hell is that? Is there a significance to the tree? Is it? You know, mm. sometimes trees yeah. have significance. They but. usually do. Let's say laburnums are quite, quite popular ornamental trees in Britain. Oh. Okay. Um, so maybe it makes it sound as just a bit more friendly. Sometimes called uh, there might be a classical chain or a golden um, rain. Yeah. You know, the only other thing I think is knowing kind of how a lot of these writers this period like to do. They often set stories in the same setting, oh. and I'm wondering if the original name is sort of tying this story into other short stories he wrote about that town, Mm. comic stories, and then later decided, actually, I'll shift (laughs) shift it. So it's not, it's not sort of part of that universe. Yeah. I, I, I have something here. Oh. Um, laburnum, a small European tree that has hanging clusters of yellow flowers succeeded by slender pods containing poisonous seeds. Yes, so maybe so, there's maybe so maybe there's a significance to them changing that because you know everything's nice and peaceful here until the monkey's paw comes and then things go turn south. Yeah, and it also it says it's a golden chain tree. Um, yeah, which you know golden it's it's it sounds nice laburnum. Whereas lakesnum it's, it makes me think of like if you look at the word it looks more like snake, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's like snake backwards like almost. It. It's not snake backwards, but it's it's like. Um, it's more threatening, maybe, and that maybe that doesn't fit with the tone. But that uh, that and one other word, as far as I can tell, are the only changes. Um, in Mr. Jim Moon's reading, uh, the word I believe is chance, 
or change um, and it's very um, it's it's also near the beginning but oh yeah it's it's right uh, when he's talking about the husband's uh, oh yeah it's in, in the next line I think father and son were at chess the former who possessed ideas about the game involving radical chance putting his king mm -hmm. into such sharp and unnecessary perils that it even provoked comment from the white haired old lady knitting placidly by the fire so in the original yeah, it's this... changes rather than chance that's funny because the, the version I have is in Otto Penzler's collection, The Big Book of Ghost Stories. Mm -hmm. And it has the second use for the Laburnum Villa, but it has changes, mm. which you said is the first one. Mm -hmm. That's the one. Um, I'm so it's funny. A... It has it's a combination of the two things, which mm. um, it, it, something that I. Oh, go ahead. It's just so that's such it's a one letter change. And, you know, if you've got a shitty copy, which I get all the time of old magazines, right, just very faded and hard to read, um, it's very easy to misread a letter. Mm -hmm. Right? So it might be that uh, chances is the letter G, you know, the bottom, I don't know, swirl is cut off. And you're looking at it and that looks like changes or changes looks like chances. I'm not sure. I don't think it makes a massive difference to the story there, but um, well, in this story, it was super popular from the beginning, right? Well, I, because... I'm looking at the um, the popularity of it, and I've got actually got the number of publications. Uh, guess how many times it's been republished? You will not believe something like a hundred, right? I've got <laughs> two hundred and three. Oh my uh, gosh! That which is insanely reprinted, right? And uh, the first publication is of uh, after the magazine is in the in the book, and then we get some in 1924, then 28, 29, 31, and then uh, 34, 37, 41, and then after this is in the 60s we basically get one every two years, and then sometimes like many times a year in like by this time it's in the 70s you've got uh, like six different books coming out with it in it you know as a as a collection of you know ghost stories or horror stories um and also uh rose was my daughter rose was mm -hmm. telling me that she read it as part of her fifth grade reading it was published in her school book her literature ah. book so oh. that's how ingrained it is in the culture right mm -hmm. now mm -hmm. and, and i was gonna good. read anything read it yeah Everybody knows that idea now of be careful what you wish for, essentially. I mean, maybe jumping the gun there, but, um, you know. I was going to say also something that I noticed. He also wrote um, a story that I have in this book called The Toll House, which is also very creepy in a different way. And it was published in The Strand in 1907. So I believe they said, oh, that's why I was wondering if it was popular from the beginning, because they said, oh. That's fine. We'll take that scary story now. Mm. Well, uh, it it may have generated some letters, but I don't think Harper's had a letters column. Um, <laughs> so it, it, sometimes, you know, it, it, it took 22 years or 23 years, 24 years, something like that for the for the second major publication. But mm -hmm. the book that it was published in uh, had at least two editions. Um and I, I was I was flipping between different versions, trying to see if the changes were in there from the beginning. 
Um, but I guess we're, I'm getting beside the point here. It's not really about, you know, what the name of the villa is, although that's a kind of a funny name for a small house in, uh, in the English countryside or suburbs or whatever. Um, what do you they name things after trees all the time? What, what do you make of the, the family's name? The, the son is Herbert, the father white and mother white. And then we've got, uh, we've got the company name, which is, uh, interestingly shows up in almost, I would say half of the, uh, half of the adaptations that I, I saw around, which is interesting because even sometimes when it's not related to, you know, the death is not caused by a factory work, it's still the same company. Oh, Ma and Megan's. Yeah, Ma and Megan's. Um, Mm -hmm. Because I think that has, it sounds, it sounds like it has meaning. And then there's Mm -hmm. the sergeant, who um, usually doesn't get a last name or a first name, or maybe maybe that is his first name, Sergeant Morris, right? No, Sergeant Major Morris. Well, yes, but (laughs) where's his name, right? Well, oh, no, he doesn't need name? a first name. Yeah, or is that his he's, last He's name? a sergeant major. Yeah. That's all you need to know about him. Yeah. <laughs> kind of a jerk, I would say. Let's just yeah. get into the story for a second. All right. This guy, I've never really examined him before until we were going to talk about this. And the more I go on, the more I'm like, how dare you? You say you are friends to these people and you keep hinting at this. And, oh, no, I really shouldn't. Oh, well, you know, the first man who made wishes wish for death in the end <laughs> because of the first yeah. two wishes answers. And I'm like, and then you're going to let the guy have it and take money for it too. Oh my God. Well, he did try and stomp him. Right. Barely. He, he threw it oh, in the fire. He, first of all, he threw it in the fire, right? He didn't even need to take it out of his freaking pocket in the first place. He, 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 did, Come on. he didn't have to mention. Oh, okay. So I want to, I want to mention something. The first time I came across this sort of idea of a story was, I don't know who wrote it. I didn't. I didn't Google and find it. I lo- long ago when I was young, I came across a story where someone had a thing that could make wishes, but they always turned bad, and the only way to get rid of it was to sell it for less than what you had paid for. And for years, I had conflated that story, which I don't know who wrote it, with it's this Robert one. Louis Stevenson wrote that. Oh, story. thank you, thank you, Julie. <laughs> the name I can't remember the name of it, yeah. but is, is that the yeah. bottle imp? The bottle imp, yeah, what? that that showed up as one of the stories that's related to this one, I think. What? Right. The Twilight Zone did that. Um, yeah. Classic. So the whole idea of having something bad that grants wishes but badly, but the only way to get rid of it is, is to basically pawn it off and for less where you got it, kind of mixed in my mind with this story for mm-hmm. years and years, and so it kind of made me think like maybe the sergeant major is a jerk, but he wants to get rid of this thing and. And part of him thinks the only way to get rid of it is to give it to somebody else. I mean, he says mysteriously that the the previous owner died, and so it came to me. Mm-hmm. There's a lot packed in that sentence that we mm-hmm. never get unpacked. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What does that mean? Mm-hmm. It's so to me. I felt and like he picked it out of his pocket. It felt like he had to get rid of it, too, because he, he didn't try. Had he not wanted something bad to happen, he would have said, do not. Like, he never, ever said, do not take this. It is cursed. Yeah, he he does. He actually does say stuff like that. It's just yeah, he, he does. Leaves but he open, doesn't stop He leaves open, like he doesn't physically remove it from their hand and throw it back into the fire, right? He he throws it yeah. into the fire, says, "Don't do that. Leave it. It's best to leave it." Um, and then they're insisting on playing. It, uh, what I like is their co- sort of humorous attitude. Uh, 
is actually <laughs> against what he's all about. He's all seriousness, right? He's all because they're thinking like normal people. Yeah, like there's nothing that France wishes. They're us yeah. in this world, right? They're they're we don't believe in curses and cursed objects and wishes, right? They don't believe that. They want to believe it, just. But it's the that's what the, what's so great about the characterization is is the father is kind of a dreamer, right? He he says I'd like to go to India just to look around, right? Mm-hmm. Well, he, what is he? He's got to be sixty. Uh, Right, he's white-haired. The wife is white-haired. He's a thin beard. Right, um, and yeah. the son is an adult working. Right, so we've got he's and how long has Sergeant Morris been away? Is uh, twenty years at least? Twenty years. Right, yeah, twenty-one years of it. Right, said Mister White. Oh, by the way, uh, start going with the numbers. Uh, this is totally when I was listening to Mister Jim Moon's podcast. It was like oh, totally clicking in my head. Um, the number three, right? The, yeah. the magic of three. Mm-hmm. So three times mm-hmm. seven yeah, is twenty-one. Mm-hmm. He's gone. He's gone away twenty-one years. There's the three family members. There's the three. Three wishes. Three wishes. But actually, the three way, people and three people. That's that's yeah. right. The the cursed object is designed to be used for three wishes by three different men. And how many men get to use it? According to the story, it's three, right? There was the original mm-hmm. guy who had it, mm-hmm. then there was Sergeant Morris, and now there's Mr. White. And all all the wishes get used, right? So there can actually not be a natural sequel to this, right? Because if you still <laughs> found the monkey's paw and you put it in a yeah. black museum, you would say um, it had all its wishes used up. Now, traditional way of trying to fix this, and there have been many, many, many adaptations of this story, <laughs> would be to just ignore that part, right? And that's usually, as Mr. Jim Moon was saying, you know, most of the uh, on his podcast, most of the adaptations are pretty terrible. Um, I don't, Except I hope, for The Simpsons. Uh, the Simpsons is good, actually, yeah. Um, <laughs> Dry Turkey Sandwich is tree, a curse. Tree I just want us to all. Volume two. Yeah. And they have a twist in it that I think is actually pretty good, which is... I, I was hoping to see it in some of the others. I thought, no, the Simpsons, they, they, they're the ones that did it. Which is, instead of squirming in his hand like a, uh, a snake, uh, maybe that oh, lake snum, right? <laughs> yeah. But rather, uh, the finger goes down every time a wish is used, right? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Which is great. You know how many wishes you have left, That's yeah. Right. <laughs> uh, it's very visual, um, as opposed to just seeing what, what the father says about what happens in his hand. Right. The other thing I like about that adaptation is Homer's kind of learning his lesson as he goes. So by the time he gets to wanting the turkey sandwich, which of course is ridiculous to waste waste a wish on, right. but it is the Simpsons. He's going, and I don't want to turn into a turkey. And I don't, <laughs> you know, all these various things. He's he's trying really hard to rule out all the logical things you could think of, um, and nobody ever's thinking of that. Even though you've seen all, you know the terrible progression of what's going on <laughs> you know like i wish for my son back in perfect health as if this accident never happened right. no nope. we should we don't think of the we should have called him back not just alive but alive and whole is one of right. the adaptations <laughs> they say right that's right. where they went wrong that's in the nightfall yes yes yeah oh and mm. by the way that nightfall episode i think is really slick if, if anybody hasn't heard that um, I, I, I did. It's good. It, it is good, right? Um, did you note who the sergeant was played by? Because he's uh, he's sort of a 
obscure figure, but uh, I think important. It, it was a guy named Chris Wiggins. Um, and maybe you don't remember who he is, but to me, I think it's significant. Uh, that play, audio drama from CBC Nightfall, came out, I believe, 1980. Um, mm. In the late 80s, uh, there was a TV show produced in Toronto, probably just like that uh, episode was, um, starring Chris Wiggins as a friend of a man named Vondredi. Um He was the friend of a shop owner, a curio sh- store owner, that purveyed cursed objects. And after oh. Vondredi <laughs> dies, <laughs> um, he uh, and the two inheritors, the two cousins uh, of you know, the, the inheritors of Vondredi's estate, have to track down uh, all the cursed objects and bring them. Wait a minute, back. I remember that What's series? the name of the show? <laughs> Isn't it Friday the 13th, the series? That's correct. So Chris yes. Wiggins, who is <laughs> oh the purveyor God. of the cursed object in the Monkey's Paw 1980 adaptation, is uh, the guy who's actually trying to get back all those cursed objects. And that is one object that, that is not never, you know, like the first one is... um. Uh, a doll uh, and basically the classic way that, yeah and the way the show works right is uh you know I, I was looking at some of the cursed objects there's a teacup that has a beautiful ivy line on it and if you drink from the teacup the ivy comes and strangles you <laughs> oh uh, and there's a doll there's a doll in the first that was one unexpected that's very cute and then it goes around killing people at night <laughs> mm, that's classic my favorite yeah. one is uh, this is one I can remember without having seen it for you know 20 years or 30 years or whatever it is, is uh, a pair of white gloves that uh, were given by a faith healer or ge- given to a faith healer, um, and what he can do is he can pull literally pull the disease out of you, right? But then he has to go find the homeless man afterwards and give him that oh, disease, no. and it magnifies the disease way worse. But he only has like about 15 minutes before the disease goes into into him. Right, so yeah. that show was super creepy. I'm super gonna look for that. Surely it's around somewhere. There's a DVD release, uh, um, and okay. probably there's a lot of stuff is on YouTube. You might find it on YouTube as well. That's what I was. So it's called Friday the Thirteenth. The series. The yes. series. Yeah. The series. Yeah. Which is yeah. it's completely disconnected okay. from the from the movies, except by the name. Like I was like, oh yeah, Vondredi means Friday. <laughs> Oh, um, <laughs> oh yeah! That's, that's the only connection. The, they just took the there name. was a plan. Yeah, yeah. There was a plan to do an episode where one of the items would be a cursed hockey mask <laughs> and be Jason's <laughs> mask. There you go. But I don't think I think there's only ever planned. They never made it. Sadly, should have done it. But that would have tied it to the series eventually. Yes, it's not cool? genius. Yeah, I, I don't know if I don't know if he got that job based on the the power of the audio drama, but um, it's possible. It's possible when they were doing the casting, you know, he just knew exactly how to do that role. It's just his life's work. It was, it's, a, it was a great show. I, I really enjoyed watching it. it Sounds great. I'm going to have to look for it. It was it was so scary to watch late at night and when I was a teen or whatever. Um, it, I like in this one, this, this story where they're talking about it had a spell put on it by a very holy man. Mm. Where he's mm-hmm. like... In case we're going to miss the moral of the story, let me just lay it out for you guys right here in one sentence. You know, it's like he's not messing around. He wanted to show that fate ruled people's lives and that those who interfered with it did so to their sorrow. Can't read this like Mr. Jim Moon, of course. Mm. 
Um, but it's that thing where you kind of miss it because you're like, uh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. That, does, that part doesn't uh, matter. Get to the wishes, right? <laughs> right. When you're rereading it, you're going, oh, holy crap. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, there was because uh, because this whole thing reminded me of um, nothing comes of nothing from King Lear, and I was so I, I googled nothing comes of nothing, and it took me to um, a Roman poet uh, Lucretius and to a book called On the Nature of Things, and this is what that it says about that. It says. But by observing nature and her laws, and this will lay the, the warp out for us, her first principle, that nothing's brought forth by any supernatural power out of naught. For certainly all men are in the clutches of a dread, beholding many things take place in heaven overhead, or here on earth, whose causes they can't fathom, they assign the explanation for these happenings to powers divine. Nothing can be made from nothing. Once we see that so, already we are on the way to what we want to know. Um, wow. Which brings me to what you just said, like, yeah, that that's what that whole thing is all about. Um, that was what I thought as well. The, the, the quote here supports your your reading here. What was it? What was that you started telling me the other day about a monkey's paw or something, Morris? Nothing, said the soldier hastily. Now, mm-hmm. he's lying there, right? So he corrects himself because mm-hmm. he doesn't want to be that kind of guy. Leastways, nothing worth hearing. Well, yeah that's still a lie but it's a better lie because he's he's being polite right and then monkey's paw said mrs white curiously <laughs> well it's just a bit of what you might call magic perhaps so he's he is minimizing offhandedly it, right? yeah offhandedly but he's but he's trying Wait. to minimize it right so mm-hmm. he's he's an honest guy he's trying to minimize it he probably shouldn't have been talking about it he doesn't bring it up the the husband brings it up right obviously they had at a meeting. But he did before. bring it up before. Well, I'm with I, Paul. He's trying to get rid of it. Well, I don't, yeah, and I don't know. I wonder, too, because, you know, I'm reading his actions and going, what a jerk. But at the same time, when you're just reading the story, you're going, I could see him having a couple too many drinks, and he brings it that up, and then they get interrupted happen. or whatever. And then the father brings it up again, and that's why he's kind of like, he, I, you know how you have a great bit of gossip and you really want to share it and you know you shouldn't, but you can't help <laughs> dropping hints about it because it's such a great thing to tell. And so you kind of let them pull it out of you, but you're encouraging it. And that's the other reading is that he's just terrible with people, you know, and this kind of a situation. Oh, so I don't know. You're, um, you're right. And look, look, at, listen to this. So right on uh, this is in the second column on the first page. The sergeant major shook hands and taking the proffered seat by the fire, watched contentedly while his host got out whiskey and tumblers and stood a sm- small copper kettle on the fire. Now, I don't know what this copper kettle is for, maybe tea, but uh, the whiskey and tumblers is to get them lubricated, right? And then right after that scene where he says nothing, not leastways nothing worth hearing, um, and then he says it's just a bit of magic, his three listeners lean forward eagerly. And then the visitor absentmindedly put his empty glass to his lips and then set it down again. What happens? His host fills it for him. His ho- mm, delicious. Right. But it gets mm. him talking, right? So he's he's got this whole uh, in vino veritas uh, action happening. If you lubricate this guy, he'll become more expansive. And what happens? He is still drinking on the next page. Um I'm going to just read this part here. Um, The soldier regarded him in 
the way the Middle Ages wont to regard presumptuous use. I have, he said quietly, and his blotchy face withered. So he's got that red face, right? Rubicund was another word. This is how he got the story out of him. Uh, Mr. White got it, the story out of out of Morris previously, is my thinking. They met in a bar, mm-hmm. and they invited him over for dinner. Notice he doesn't stay the night. He's not that close a friend, right? Yeah, um, yeah, that's a good point. And I'm wondering, like, does he have sergeant stripes still on his arm? Is he is he got the chevrons and the and the? Under- does he have an arm? <laughs> <laughs> he wished it back. That's the next story. <laughs> <laughs> the arm comes looking for the sergeant major. Yeah, I want to talk about how you could do sequels to this, and uh, I got an idea. The, anyway, <laughs> the soldier the soldier regarded him in a way that Middle Ages won't to regard presumptuous use. I have, he said quietly, and his blotchy face whitened. And did you really have the three wishes granted? asked Mrs. White. I did, said the sergeant major, and his glass tapped against his strong teeth. So he's still <laughs> drinking, right? This is quite deep into the conversation. He keeps taking these. And so all the stuff about him being like a bad dude. It's more like he he's careless, and yet that object is played such an important role in his life. Obviously, well, somebody said to him, "Would would you have if you could have three more? Would you have them?" And he said, "I don't know." Mm. He didn't say no. Mm-hmm. He said, I, "I don't know." Like, what kind of an answer is that? What's the takeaway for a, a, a first time reader of this story? Give it to me. <laughs> Right. Give it to me. I'll mm-hmm. make it proper. Just like Homer does. Right. I want a turkey sandwich. Mm-hmm. I don't want any, any. I don't want to turn into a turkey. Um, Mr. Jim Moon, you made a connection uh, that I had forgotten about a story uh, about uh, a fisherman. Well, yes, if you look into that kind of there's a long history of these sort of stories of where wishes are granted, but you have to be very careful what and how you wish for them. Um, particularly also it, it overlaps with deals with the devil as well mm-hmm. uh, you have to be very careful how you word what you want because um, the devil is the father of all lies and lawyers and uh, <laughs> yes. will hold you to your word in a way that makes Shylock proud um, <laughs> but there are there are two like classic fairy tales that have this sort of three wish structure more or less there's a Grimm's fairy tale um, where a, a fisherman catches a fish and the fish yes. says, I'm a magic fish, let me go. Uh, and the fisherman does. And he goes back and his wife goes, you idiot, that was a magic fish. You could have got a wish out of it mm. and sends it back. And then they wish for riches. And then she says, it's nice being a rich, but we don't have status. I'd like to be queen. And so he goes and pesters the fish and she becomes queen. But that's not enough. She wants to be emperor. And then she wants to be Pope. And then she wants to be God herself. And at that point, the fish goes, oh, stuff you lot. <laughs> and they find all the wishes have gone. <laughs> well, no, actually, uh, she. It, I thought it went that she says, I want to be the ruler of everything, the universe and everything. He says, no problem. And they're back in their hovel because that's right. how Jesus would be. Right. You know. Yeah, well, that's one gloss in the in, Oh, okay. The I thought that was yeah, the actual yeah. story. Okay. <laughs> well, it's one of these. It's a folk story. There's lots of variations. The Grimm's. Ray recorded a rather bare version. Got it. Okay. What I call the just the facts, man version. (laughs) And then later, people who retell the Grimm stories actually start to embroider and put morals on and round them out. Yeah, it's interesting. If you read the original Grimm's fairy tales, you find actually these are half finished. Mm. Call this a fairy tale, boy. But you know, they're not. They were. They were. They weren't writing stories to be enjoyed as stories. They were just collecting. 
the sort of you know tales that people have been telling each other and quite clearly some people didn't weren't, know the ending so I'll just you know that they weren't very good storytellers no, uh, there's some, there some, there some weird stories in the Grimville there's one about a sausage who's alive that's really mad I did a show it's on kind that of, one I did a show on yeah, uh, yeah. one with it's called the mouse the bird and the sausage and it's a terrific story mm. um, uh, it's, it's probably about polyamory actually <laughs> <laughs> interesting huh. but um some of the well, some of the great stories are incredibly finished isn't it? and some of them mm. are incredibly unfit like hansel and gretel has tons of detail right uh, at least in mm. in in the grimm's version whereas a story in the same book might have um almost no detail at all and you, you have to fill in all the meanings like or you know like the attitudes or anything it's mm. just the actions that are listed and yeah, so it can be a mix. Um, was there was there one one other story, uh, especially one? With, well, yes, there's, yeah. there's an even older one, which was recorded by another great uh, chronicler of folk tales and fairy tales, uh, Charles Perrault. Right. From whom we have read Rising Hood famously, and so you know Cinderella as well, I believe, and several other famous stories. Oh yeah. But um, his story, I mean, this one it has many variations, and it's considered the oldest of all the Three Wishes stories, with the oldest version being found in like, the 1600s, a recorded version anyway. <clears throat> Excuse me, but in that it's um, it's a woodcutter. Or sometimes he's a fisherman, but he finds a magic fish, or he's going to cut down a tree with a with a tree spirit in, and the magical being says, "Look, if you spare me, I'll grant you three wishes." Um, so he accepts, goes home, and um, his wife says, "Well, don't wish straight away. Think about this." And he says, "All right, I'll mull it over, and we'll do it tomorrow." And then later in the evening, he sat by the fire and he thinks, just accidentally says out loud, "I wish I had a sausage." And <laughs> There you go. There's a wish gone, and he has a sausage. Homer, and his wife goes, is that you? Yeah. And he, well, the, the Simpsons, I think, mind this quite quite a lot. This story because his wife then says, "You stupid idiot! I wish that sausage was on the end of your nose. You wasted a wish." Yes. But then so is she, and of course they can't get the sausage off his nose. <laughs> they take him to doctors. They pull at it. They pull at ropes, and of course they have to use the third wish to get rid of the sausage <laughs> from his nose in the end. <laughs> <laughs> Hey Jesse, I got a I got a movie involving a one bad wish that you that even you probably haven't seen. What's that? But you mean you might surprise me. Um, have you ever heard of the movie Interstate sixty? I don't think so. Aha! Finally got you. Okay. <laughs> okay. Huge it, triumph here. Yeah, well, because Jesse sees a lot more movies than just about anybody. So anyway, one of the characters in Interstate sixty is a half leprechaun who grants just one wish to person but if he doesn't like you he really twists it badly and his name is ow grant for one wish grant and ah. one person wished to be able to eat whatever he wants so he, now he's a black hole in his belt and he has to eat six times a day and not another another person wished that he had broken his cell phone so time rearranges so that he gets hit by the truck instead of the cell phone getting crashed it's like so yet yeah. but the, the main character gets a wish that usually isn't bad until the end and where he has to finally destroy what the wish had given in order to escape. But yeah, so it's like, but the, the whole tradition of, of negative wishes apparently goes back a long way. It's like, it's a, it's a cautionary tale. Be mm. careful what you wish for. You may get it. It's a, it's a long, long tradition. It says it's from 2002 and it has very high ratings, 86% audience score on, but, on tomatoes. It sounds like a good movie. It's in, <laughs> 
it's an interesting movie. Parts of it were filmed in in Canada, actually. No so doubt. They, no doubt. Um, I, I did watch a number of adaptations, and I've regretted most of it. The 1948 one is terrible. It's very muddy, hard to watch. Um, I, I, tr- I tried. I could not see anything. It, it's, not worth, it's not yeah. worth watching. Um, I tried to watch the monkeys adaptation, you know, the show, the monkeys, the monkeys paw. Um, and sounds adorable. If I was a lot younger or a lot drunker, which I don't really get drunk, I think I could watch it. But I only thing I noticed, they kept turning to the camera and making really bad jokes. Like, like, like the show wasn't scripted. (laughs) So, um, it was, uh, it was not worth watching. Um, there were, I think, a couple of other ones. Wasn't uh, Mr. Jim Moon? Did you mention that part of the 1972 Tales from the Crypt had had? Uh, oh yes, yes, it did. Of um, a loose adaptation. It has a variant version, which is um, it's in the Tales from the Crypt film, but it was adapted from a story that confusingly <laughs> wasn't in Tales from the Crypt. <laughs> it was in the Haunt of Fear, called Wish You Were Here. Uh, where basically you've got a ruthless businessman who is just about to go under, um, played by uh, Richard Green, who was Robin Hood once upon a time. Um, and his wife gets hold of a Chinese figurine, which supposedly grants three wishes. Uh, she wishes for a fortune. That comes true. However, she, <laughs> she gets it because her husband is killed in a car crash. Mm. Um Then she uses a second wish to bring him back from the dead. Um, how, however, she discovered she actually thinks that there might be a cat, and she carefully she words her wish though, so he comes back exactly as he was before the accident. Please. Mm-hmm. <laughs> however, what she finds is his car crash um, was down to the fact that he would had a heart attack. Ah. So, <laughs> so he's alive but constantly having a heart attack. So her final wish is to send him back to how he was when he's dead, and he's still alive. But then, because he's been embalmed, he's still in constant agony, and he's trapped in eternal pain. Uh, <sighs> did not work out very well. There, I believe there was a uh, well, I know there was a, another Tales of the Crypt the HBO adaptation, and I was wa- I saw that one. Yeah, I was watching that one. It was on uh, YouTube, and it was it was okay. It was a little comedic. Um, it was kind of fun. It was it was okay. It was okay. A little bit muddy again. Uh, video quality not that great. Uh, speaking of video quality not that great, I believe I dropboxed everybody. The uh, Alfred Hitchcock presents. Um, did mm-hmm. any ma- anybody manage to watch that one? Oh, With, I didn't realize. Yeah, I didn't see it. So Lee Majors plays the son Herbert. <laughs> um, and oh. as in the 1948 <laughs> film, instead of dying at the factory, getting caught in the machinery, he's like a race car driver. Um, and his mother is like worried he's going to get injured in every race. And he's got a girlfriend and they seem to be on some, I don't know, Barbados or Jamaica or something. So there's a lot of uh, Spanish and um, I guess Jamaica's not Spanish, but whatever. There's a lot of voodoo going on. Maybe it's Haiti. I don't know why they're having races in Haiti, but whatever. Um, and well, for the period, it was all just foreign, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it was very. <laughs> it was their attitude, basically. It just makes it a little extra. Like there's a a very long scene where Lee Majors kisses his girlfriend over and over and over again, oh. while uh, witch doctoress is you know casting the spell on the cursed object or whatever. 
Um, it does. It, it was, I believe, the original run of Alfred Hitchcock Present was only half hour. Um, and then this, by the time in the tenth season, which is when this one was out, it's never been released on DVD. Um, the show is an hour long, so that it it has it feels like it's got filler, but it's 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 so funny. Even that 1948 version, they they add all these frills and elements, and then when it comes down to it, they run to the door, right? And the wife wants to open the door, and she can't open the door, and the husband's racing to find the the paw, and hoping that the wife. Like it's really interesting the dynamics in the original story, is that the husband start, sort of starts it off, right? The wife encourages it playfully. The son encourages it playfully, including saying some things that are wickedly interesting. Like he, as he's going off to work, he says, um, "Let's see if I've got it." Yeah, he says, wish to be an emperor father to begin with. And that, that goes right back to the original source material, right, Mr. Jim Moon? Um, then you won't get henpecked. And then as he's walking <laughs> out the door, he says, I expect, uh, I'm, uh, I don't have it handy, but he says, oh, maybe it's right here. Did, did he say famous and happy or something? Not famous. Are you thinking about, well, I don't see the money, said his son, as he picked it up and placed it on the table, and I bet I never shall. And you're like, foreshadowing. I say in my notes, it says, he never will, exclamation point. Right? Yep. Um, but he says, I expect you'll find it. I'm just going by memory. Oh, I expect right. you'll find it on the, on the middle of your bed in a big bag. Um, and as you uh, pocket your ill-gotten gains, you'll see a, a little monster on the sideboard. Mm-hmm. Something horrible. Something horrible looking at you from the sideboard. And then he goes off to work, and then, you know, they're eating dinner saying, boy, Herbert should be home soon. <laughs> right. Yeah, but first he sits alone in the darkness looking at the fire and right. seeing something Simeon looking back at him. Right. And then he puts out his hand to um, uh, for some water mm. to throw on the fire, and he touches the monkey's paw, and I'm like, oh. So that's the horrible everything. Well, also, though, the father is urged. He, it's not really his idea. You know, they say, so wish for something. So he's pushed that's by right. all the people. That's right. That's it's the right. very last wish where he's like, no, here's what I said. There's I no already blame. said. Right. Yeah. I shouldn't. None of this should happen. I'm going to undo everything because, oh, my gosh. And that the last I have to say. I made poor Rose sit there while I read the last bit out loud because I was like, it was so perfectly written. Mm -hmm. And you did such a great job reading it, um, Jim. And um, if I may say it without the Mr. Moon, um, (laughs) (laughs) I realize we're formal, but still. Um, but But the, you know, it's this back and forth, one sentence, another sentence, and he's just, it's almost cinematic. He's taking you from scene to scene to scene to scene, intercutting. And by the time you get to that point, you're just, oh, please, please, hurry, 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 hurry. You know, he just takes you with him. And so when the door opens and there's nothing there, you're just like, oh, thank goodness. Mm-hmm. You know, it's so well written. I want to I want to point out that Ma and Megan's, when you just look at it on the page, Ma, M-A-W, is not... It's mouth. Right? It's it's a mouth, yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's the thing that swallow, chew, opened its mouth and chewed up the sun, right? That's why you had to ask mm-hmm. for him whole. Um, in the mm-hmm. Alfred Hitchcock adaptation, um, she, the father forgot to ask for him to be whole, so 
Um, he says, don't look, don't look. He's looking out the window. He says, go away. As he's looking for the, uh, <laughs> for the, uh, go away. yeah. And he's looking out the window down at what's, at the, he was in a terrible car accident, right? So they're, they're incorporating the sort of other glosses of this story and other adaptations. And it's very, very uh, almost perfect. This story really, it's just almost perfect for what it, it does. Um, but I, I just think of the word maw not just being for for um, the mouth, but also that sound, paw, maw, right? Oh, it's it's yeah. a, a sort of a callback. And Megan's is almost like begging, right? <laughs> no! Uh, right? It's, uh, it's probably why they keep it, even though it's under, like, I guess Ma and Megan's becomes an insurance company or something. When when it's the car race uh, adaptation, uh, it just doesn't it it doesn't need to be changed, right? It, it's perfect as it is. The structure is well, is uh, notice it's got three sections, right? It's and the, and the yeah. wishes are completely used up. Um, mm-hmm. So when you try, I was thinking like how adaptations could work, like if you're going to make it longer than the half hour audio drama or. Um, you know, the Simpsons version, how, how, how you could, you can't like the 2013, I didn't even bother watching it. Did anybody watch that one? I watched it a long time ago and it was kind of, yeah, it's pretty much monkey's paw in name only. It right. really just takes a name oh. and then does something else. And it was very forgettable. And indeed I have forgotten most of it. <laughs> <laughs> so I was thinking, um, there actually is a way of doing this. It's, it's actually right built into the story as well. You do it in reverse order. So you start with this, and then you have the sergeant story, right? And uh. we know what what he did. He he used it and survived, but he didn't do it the right way, right? And it, it, he didn't end up how he wanted to end up. And yet he got close, just like the family got close to what they thought they wanted, right? In the you know getting that two hundred pounds, um, except they didn't get it, did they? So. It, it, it rewards you, but not in the way you wanted, right? So finding out what those three wishes, the sergeant's three wishes, which he says he'll never share, right? Which is interesting. It makes me wonder what the hell they were. But then we do know what one of the wishes for of the original guy and how how he got it. He must have told the story to, to the sergeant, right? Because how does the sergeant know anything right. about it right so yeah there, there is some interaction there and then you go back in time and you see the fakir at the end um sort of telling a story and one one uh, adaptation online I, or reading i heard online was preceded by a little introduction as saying how some people looking at it now think of this story as uh the the paw is india's revenge on england right because of colonialism now, obviously, that wouldn't have been the main idea, I don't think, in the minds of the readers in 1902. But, uh, you know, England oppressing uh, India under the Raj and having this, you know, sergeant there basically going around, going into battle. It even says, um, imagines when the sergeant first goes into battle, the face he he put on, right? So he's, he's not there, you know, to move papers about he's there to enforce uh government will basically so 
if you see it as a revenge story, um, the revenge is pretty terrible, right? Uh, but that's not what the the what what our our sergeant says. It, it's the fakir wanted to yeah, show. Yeah, that's not the lesson. <laughs> that's not the lesson that the yeah. Um, but basically, this is kind of like the, we see stories like this with immortality. Like when you wish for immortality, you wish you could actually die. Usually afterwards, right? Because some horrible eternal punishment, and and we come away with the idea after reading these stories of immortality gone wrong that. We should, we would be better, and we should be happy that we're mortal. Well, also, um, just I had some, um, like a thought that happened right now, thanks to a variety of things we talked about, and one of them being, you know, the comment that Jim made about, you know, oh yes, the modern things we're worried about, you know, the car racing, the or the, you know, foreign lands and everything mm-hmm. that are exotic with the voodoo and everything, and so that reminded me that um, I also heard the people on um, a podcast to the curious. Mm-hmm. Talk about this story, which if you like M.R. James, which Jesse, I know he's not your favorite, but I love him. Uh, They have moved on to some of the stories that influenced M.R. James, and this was one. And they pointed out something I would never have thought about, which is, you know, how modern the new this neighborhood is Mm -hmm. or that it's on the outskirts and everything, which made me pay attention to the idea that, you know, they it's doubly pointed up when they come back from the funeral at the new cemetery. Which makes you think it's just open and empty and Mm. very awful and probably weren't many people there, very isolated again. And then the idea that the sun dies not through, oh, I don't know, getting hit by a horse and buggy, but through industrialization, he's crushed. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So these are all the new things that everybody's kind of worried about, which are the perfect things to put into a horror story, Mm -hmm. right? That's what we're worried about. So you can play on that. But it also made me think about the fact that the faker – or Fakir, was talking about we can't, the, the curse, or maybe it was the sergeant major who says everything that happens, you can't tell if it's coincidence or not. Mm. So this is also in a newer age where you're being presented with all these different, you know, there's science, there's all this stuff. How do we evaluate the train of events that we can see leading to a good or a bad conclusion mm-hmm. in our lives? Mm-hmm or around us. And we can blame, everybody can blame all different things because depending on your point of view. And I know for me, this is one of my things that was a huge question for me when I was not a Christian. And I was like, how does anybody know this stuff all looks like coincidence? Mm -hmm. But the thing I like about this story, which is what happened to me, though, luckily with not with a monkey's paw, (laughs) um, was when a coincidence happens and you it's meant for you to understand, essentially, you know it. So the whites have no doubt that they got the 200 pounds because of Herbert's death, which was because of that damned mon- monkey's paw. They know it. I was worried certainly about the you bringing knows. this up, and I was thinking exactly, oh, I'm going to be talking to Julie, and she has, <laughs> she has, she has <laughs> this story, saying. and I, I've, got, I've, got, I've got the naturalistic explanation, and I don't think anybody's no, no. going to like it. But I think it perfectly fits the facts. Let me just finish with my disclaimer. It's like every person has to kind of discover and think through this for themselves, right, in their life. Because even if you're, say, you're raised as a solid believer in whatever it is, you have those moments where you go, well, wait a minute. This explanation I've been given, there are other reasons for it. So you have to stop and evaluate for yourself. 
Um, and that's why, but that's why in this story, it's, it was striking to me when I was like, oh, they get it. Mm-hmm. And we get it because we know there's no other reason for the story to be told. Otherwise it means nothing. Well, that's, uh, you know, that's, that's, it. that's what, uh, it's true. The story means, means what it means because of the framing of the way we see it. So what I, what I'm thinking about, okay. And this is, this is the, um, this is the, so, you know, I, I don't know if you guys know this, but a long time ago, I didn't have just this website. I had another website. It's called Arl Noir, which is basically, instead of science fiction fantasy, it was about um, mystery, crime, noir, hard-boiled stuff, right? Audio. Did not know. Yeah, okay. Did so, not know. So I, 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 I was doing the two def- separate, separate blogs, and this is before the podcast, but I, I eventually thought, this is stupid. I keep having to log into two different websites, so I merged them together. <laughs> And then I, I just stopped using the, the uh, you know the different colors and stuff to distinguish it. So it's it's still in the website. It's just hidden away. But hmm. back when I was doing that, I was reading um, all the. I, I I this is just to say I I know everything about. <laughs> This sounds everything. Funny. Everything. No. That is no, 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 no. Everything. Uh, uh, <laughs> like, if there is a movie about um, grifters out there, I've seen it. Oh. Okay. <laughs> if there's a movie about pickpocket, there's a movie, great movie starring. Um, uh, what the, I can't remember the name, guy's name. Uh, James Coburn. A uh, great movie, co- uh, never been released on DVD, called Harry in Your Pocket. <laughs> which is I've great heard of that. it's a it's a movie yeah. set in seattle and filmed around here um about a pickpocket at, who takes uh michael sarazen i think is the actor uh, under his wing and teaches him how to become a pickpocket so it's a movie about pickpocketing i know all about pickpocketing it's fascinating i've been pickpocketed <laughs> in my life i've stopped pickpocketers you know oh. I, I i love this stuff have you pickpocketed uh no <laughs> uh, but i, I do love okay. pick I don't lockpick often, but I do lockpick. <laughs> okay. Um, I didn't realize your it's your, different, but fine. Your D D class was rogue, <laughs> oh, Jesse. I always played thief. <laughs> always played thief when I was oh, or bar, thief or barbarian or barbarian thief. But um, the the important part about this is this is a scam. Okay, so there is a naturalistic way of explaining this story, um, but it needs another scene. So. Everything, we frame the story just as we saw, right? Now, instead of ending the story as we do, as Sergeant Morris walks out um, out of the house, having had his free meal and lots of drinks, and sold, even though he's, mm-hmm. you know, we don't know how much it was, I'm, I'm assuming it's less than 200 pounds, Right? Mm-hmm. Probably ten pounds or you know, five pounds or something. That, so, that's a lot. It, yeah. Whatever yeah. it is. Whatever it yeah. is. He was given his force money is given given uh, a, a free meal and uh, lots of drinks, right? Um and he's walking down the street and he says to himself as he reaches into his his pocket, Ah, oh, eighteen more to go and he pulls out another monkey's paw. <laughs> <laughs> right because what did he do in india is he picked up one of those nigerian prince scams right where it's it's a it's a box full of, a crate full of monkey's paws and all he does is he meets people in the bar and he wears his uniform and he tells the story now here's why this isn't 
uh, a supernatural story this way, right? Is there is actually a scam that works this way, and it's incredibly interesting. So imagine you get a a note slipped under your door. You're living in an apartment. You get a note slipped under your door and it says, bet on tonight's race, the horse race, right? Um, uh, Laburnum, the horse, will win uh, in the first race, right? And you don't bet on it because you don't know who sent this, but you are curious. So you look in the paper, I guess, <laughs> and you find out that, oh my God, it happened, right? And then the next day, you get another note under your door, and it says, bet on a Lakesnum horse. Uh, and you, again, don't believe it, but you're even more curious now, right? And if, lo and behold, the horse wins. You could have made so much money. If you had bet 100 pounds or $10 or whatever, you could have made so much money. Um, third day comes, and... Note slipped under the door and says, for today's results, please enclose $5 or whatever and mail it to you, right? Now, this is a scam that was actually employed, right? What they would do is they would, they would keep track of who they sent notes to. So they'd have some guy, actually, was this done through the mail rather than... Uh, when postage was super cheap, right? So what you do is you you write a letter, and you um, you you can fancy it up, but it do, it just has to have the first time you get it, it it's it's a winner. The second time you get it, it's a winner, and the third time it's the request for uh, money. Okay. Mm-hmm. And you yeah. mail you mail every building in town, right? This letter, or every every building in a neighborhood or something or whatever and and then what happens is anytime your results are wrong right as the scammer you don't mail those people the second one oh right okay. and then the second time you mail it you can actually do it longer than that to narrow it more and that increases the chance of your money going up but this is a known scam but as long as you frame it just from the inside your house point of view, as is done with this story, this is adaptable as a play, right? You don't even have to leave the house uh, when they go to the... In fact, none of the scenes are set yeah. outside the house. Just looking at it from our small perspective of the family circle and the stranger coming in and then the later stranger coming in with the... By the way, why is there a detail about him having a, a new silk hat? I don't know, but I think it means something. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> they have lots of money and they want to hang on to it. Well, that Ma- Ma and Megan's, you might be, that might exactly be the reason for oh, it. Oh, come right? on. The first thing he does is go, we're not liable. I want well, everyone he, to know we were sa- following all safety procedures. Well, but he's also just the messenger boy, right? But the fact that he's wearing that silk hat, um, it, it's, is it a bribe to him to dress up, right? <laughs> Who knows? It, it, it's never said. But as long as we frame it inside the house, inside the family circle, the story as written seems like a supernatural story, right? <laughs> and you could say, well, what about the knocking on the door, Jesse? <laughs> well, Nicky Nicky Nine Doors was a game I played. And the thing is, is if you imagine this guy's walking all over England with monkey's paws in his pocket, meeting people at bars, getting you know drunk at their their homes and and t- selling these things then it's all perfectly compatible it's just the framing 
right? Because we never actually well, see the zombie here. Yeah, but let me just say this. Yep. What the author intended to tell us is contained in his text. <laughs> therefore, <laughs> I'm just going to say, therefore, that's why the idea, however little or to whatever reason we attribute the sergeant major's gradual introduction of the monkey's paw, aside from the fact that you really need it for the story, mm. is that we are told nothing about him having to get rid of it or even hinted at in the text. We are told nothing about there being some outside purpose. Well, think of, so think of what... if you're we can make up all these things and put Lee Majors in them with a race car and they go spur, but it's not what's in the text. And the text is what the author meant us to see. Therefore, you can say all that, but no, no, this is the, you know, problem with that. Well, here's what, think of the psychology going on, right? He, he says, the friend, the friend, Mr. White says, uh, what about that monkey's paw you were telling me about? He wants to sort of sh- hear more about that story, um, maybe see the monkey's paw, have his wife see it, have the son see it. it it's an ant- I mean, There's no TV, there's no radio, right? They're playing chess to while away the evening. They invite a strang- uh, virtual stranger over uh, to you know tell stories and make their lives more interesting. And I he, thought he lived a little vicariously through his friend. Oh, absolutely, yeah. right? He wants to see the temples and absolutely. the bigger and, 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 and he says, no, no, I'm a mysterious stranger. <laughs> you would, yeah. You're better off here in England, right? You should never go to India because, yes, it's it's fascinating, but ooh, it's, it's full of scary stuff. And then he says, uh, monkey's paw, yeah, no, that doesn't exist, right? So he's using reverse psychology. And then he <laughs> says, monkey's paw, it's evil. And he throws it in the fire, right? Again, reverse psychology. The guy digs it out, and he doesn't even ask for money. This is the this is literally the way con men work, right? They don't. The reason they can get away with so much is because you give them money, right? There's so many scams where you like you're walking through an alley and a a guy and you both see a wallet. At the same time, right? The wallet's filled with $100 bills, uh, but just three of you, right? And you want to split the money. So one of them says, okay, you give me 20 bucks, and I'll go to the bank and get change, and you hold the wallet, and then you never see those guys again. You just lost your money, right? That whole system where you set up anticipation, I agree. It's not in the story, and that's not what's intended, but in the framing, that's what's so interesting about the story is it's framed so beautifully. It's the family circle, right? It's the three sitting around the fire, playing chess and knitting. And then one ad- adaptation, the when the monkey's paws mentioned the the mother stabs herself with the uh, with a knitting needle. No, that's never happened before, right? <laughs> <laughs> and you know we've we've got oh. the dark and stormy night outside. It's all in the framing. So. Yeah, which is why the author made sure to tell us the point of the monkey's indeed, paw. Indeed. And tell us what's going to happen, and we're going to watch it indeed. unfold. I'm not saying that this you is what, I, what what is is going on in the story. I'm saying stories <laughs> of this kind, especially ones that are so um, aware of other stories like this, right? This is a very self-aware story. The mother talks about the Arabian Nights. The son talks about the uh, monster on the sideboard, right? 
the the whole takeaway from the story is that its stories are valuable. And we know that because this is basically a confection, right? This story doesn't have any basis in reality. It's a confection. And yet it has massive power over us. And it's about the framing. Right. I, I, and what you're arguing. What I'm saying sorry, is. I interrupted. Uh, no, I'm just saying that, that that's why when you look outside, that's why this need not be a, sto- a horror story, Right. It's all about the framing. So I, I yeah, you could you could super make it boring. That's true. <laughs> well, uh, so it's not boring. That's no, just wait, a different wait. kind of genre, right? Just a minute, Jesse. Different genre. Somebody else was talking. Oh, I, I was going to say, um, your your story, your con man story, Star Trek just did that oh, with really? um, Discovery. They did <laughs> really? one with Harry Mutt. Yes, watch it. It's a Star Trek short. It, um, previous to the season of Discovery starting. And it's a Harry Mudd story, and I, I'm not going to tell you what happened if you haven't seen it because it's great, but you should look it up. Star Trek Discovery right. shorts, Harry Mudd. Got it. Right. Thank and was you. Jim saying something, or Paul? Yes, oh, yeah. Jim. Well, th- this fits into another sort of now forgotten genre, which is sometimes called the club story. Oh, I love it's those. Popular in uh, Victorian oh, Edwardian times, where you have a gentleman who's been a traveller, often in the mm-hmm. military, and he sat in his club and he retells a tale of his adventures. Mm-hmm. Uh, the most famous ones are the Jorkin stories by uh, Lord Dunsany, which actually yes. the final one is a very clever ghost story. They're amazing. Mm. Yeah. Clark that, that, wrote uh, his own The Tales of the White Heart, and there was another author, uh, Asimov, had the. Tales of Black Widowers, Black Widowers, I think. And there's the Binscombe Tales, you know. I read a couple of those on um, Forgotten Classics. Okay. Those are a modern collection of really interesting horror stories slash fantasy. So good. English. Um, and they're available on, I guess, through Amazon and, you know, as an ebook or regular book. But um, really, really grip you. <laughs> Did you and guys the authors. See- the author's oh, a great guy because he actually said, because I kind of read it and went, this is a sample. And he said, a friend of mine had me listen to your reading. He goes, and I heard things in there I didn't know there were. And so then later on, he asked me to read another one. So he's wow. a super nice guy. If you ever read the collection and wanted to talk about one, he might, you know, talk about it with you. Wow. Just an idea. But anyway. Uh, did you did you see my late night tweet? Uh, somebody on Reddit came up with this idea. Uh, or at least that's where I saw it. It's the monkey's spa. <laughs> Doesn't the spa have of... enough horror stories for us already? Just the mirrors just the... alone. Come on. A, a, a bunch of monkeys sitting in one. I think it's in Japan, you know, sitting in a <laughs> natural hot spring, enjoying themselves. And uh, somebody oh, says yeah, the snow monkeys. Yeah. And says, somebody said the curse. Uh, and I say, yes, cursed to be comfortable. <laughs> Right. <laughs> sitting covered in snow but fully warm and, and chillaxing in the in the spa um there was an adaptation in uh it's a public domain comic it's called if i had three wishes there's a whole bunch of different adaptations out there that you know do the same thing but ultimately it never works out right that's the whole point is is you're better off not having this cursed <laughs> object. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that's true of the story. I think the story is is not. It's the opposite of cursed. It's almost blessed, right? It, it in reading it, we. I th- it's almost like we're taking a comfortable lesson. 
right? As opposed to um, being cursed with immortality forever. We're saying, you know, it's, it's kind of better that I... I mean, that, that's the funny thing, right? Is the father, does, he says he's happy, right? He does. Right, yeah. He doesn't have anything to wish for. And he, he his, it's his... And I love how it's the guilt is so evenly spread between the three of them that the mother never, ever says, you killed my son! Right. right? And the father yep. never says, I killed our son, right? Yeah. It's so evenly spread. The son encouraged the father. The the wife encouraged the father. The father um, regrets acquiescence. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. He, he he's kind of a wishy washy character, right? The the wife is sort of pushing him around. The son's pushing him around. Um, and and he, you know, he. I love that chess move he makes at the beginning. I do this in chess too. You know, when I make a terrible move, I say, look at the snow out there. Wow. He puts his king into, I mean, I mean, I mean, you can use the chess as a little bit of a metaphor for the story. He takes a, yes. he ultimately takes a risk with the king I, himself right. that does not turn out well. Yeah. That's oh, exactly yeah. Right. Genius. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and, I also, uh, oh, go ahead. Go for it. No, I was just going to, um, I was kind of glancing at this and, those two paragraphs where they talk about after Herbert is dead, mm-hmm. the huge new cemetery, they buried their dead and came home. And then it talks about how it affected them. And this, again, shows you his skill because within those two paragraphs, which are just a few sentences, it's so realistic. You understand this hopeless resignation, this apathy. They hardly even talk to each other. They never see anybody from outside. And you understand why she's so desperate, you know. Um, it's just, it's you know, it's funny that he just wrote these short stories and that a lot that he wrote were humorous. And I remember hearing, um, oh gosh, maybe I already mentioned this. Why oh, can't I remember this guy's name? Because, you know, the guy who did Get Out, mm. he, oh, people Jordan were talking. Yes, thank you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I could see his face, could not remember his name. Because um, I get Peel and Key, the... I watched their stuff and I tend to get mixed up which name uh, has done which accomplishment because I think of them as a, a couple, really. But they, um, but he was talking to people who were saying, but you were a comedian. And he says, don't you think comedy and horror turn mm-hmm. on the same thing? You set everybody up with this set of expectations and then you flip it. He said, it's just which way you flip it, whether it's hilarious or horrific. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was such an interesting insight into – we wait, We are waiting deliberately to have our expectations turned over, and somebody who's skillful can do both. And so this author is that way. And um, also another one who's that way that this conversation made me think of is E.F. Benson, mm. who's who it's the opposite. He was known in his day for his ghost stories, but now he's known for his map and Lucia mm-hmm. and his other funny stuff. Mm. So. Um, There is a comedy version of this that is well worth watching. I forgot I had watched it yesterday. Um, It's a show called Ripping Yarns. Oh, oh, I love that. Michael Palin, Terry Jones. (laughs) I watched that. It was funny. It was good, right? Um, (laughs) It's called The Curse of the Claw, and it goes way off (laughs) off the script. They go to Burma, sort of, (laughs) Um, and he tells the story to uh, a guy who's venturing towards Burma and gets lost. Um, very, very funny, very funny stuff. Uh, obviously, 
loosely based on this story. <laughs> um, but I just so happened, as I want to do, I'm looking through old magazines this week, and I came across a story that I want to send Mr. Oh, maybe I even did send to Mr. Jim Moon and all you folks. Um, and I sent the illustrations too. It's called The Haunted Tomb by C.H. Shannon. And then it's got a he's got an appellation after which is ask a s s o c m i n s t s e or c e which turns out to be an associate member of the institution of civil engineers so this is like you know phd or obe or something people put on the end of their names i i tried to find any evidence that this is a real person c h shannon probably is but not much comes up but this is a short story um it's got a frame uh and it's set in india and it's uh, it's set in the Punjab, in fact. And um, the there's a guy telling the story to a, uh, a probably a civil engineer, right? Um, who said a long time ago, see that see that uh, tomb over there? That tomb was haunted. There was a ghost. Um, and in telling the story, you're the detective, because about halfway through, I'm like. Oh, this is this is is this a ghost story or is this a Scooby-Doo story? <laughs> and, and there's three. Uh, somebody, some podcast I was listening to this week pointed out that there's three kinds of stories. Really, at least we can classify them in three different ways. There's the un- stories of the uncanny, where at the end of the story we find out there's some truth about reality that we were not. A, a privy to prior and that's this kind of story the one we read today then there's a story where like lord of the rings where everybody knows about magic right it's just they don't see it so when bilbo gets a magic ring um frodo doesn't say that's impossible i don't believe it <laughs> right? you're you're just using you're just losing illusions right there literally is magic it's just mm-hmm. not it's not everywhere all the time um, and then there's the the third kind of story where things seem to be magical, right? And this is the whole Gothic tradition, right? The, the house is haunted. But by the end of the story, like we just did, Paul, remember we did Wieland, right? Yes. Um, at the end of the story, all the ventriloquism, all the uh, spontaneous combustion, or almost all of it, can be mm-hmm. attributed to... Um, a naturalistic explanation. And, 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 and they say it right at the beginning that it's like, oh, it's, uh, it's closest to being miracles without actually being miracles. Right, mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. So it's like, what what is, like, we, we might have questions, um, but there, there's that uh, third kind, there's a, uh, maybe I mis, misidentified one of these, but there's a another kind of story where at the end it's open. And I, I maybe it was maybe this was on the H.P. Lovecraft literary podcast. They were talking about maybe it was this one, uh, the 2007 movie uh, Cthulhu, which is not based on Call of Cthulhu exactly. But at the end of the story, the final scene is the hero uh, having to he's got a knife raised over his girlfriend oh, right. uh, and his father, <laughs> and he has to decide whether he's going to kill his father or his girlfriend, right? The father who's kidnapped her and made their lives miserable. But if he kills her, then he becomes, you know, the head of the church and continues the long family tradition. So that's the final scene. You never see whether he stabs 
his girlfriend or stabs his father or maybe just walks away and says i'm out of here well <laughs> you you guys do your own stuff <laughs> it's an open ending whereas this story the, the monkey's paw it seems to be a closed ending it seems to be we're in a story of the uncanny um this other story um uh, that i sent to you um called the haunted tomb about halfway through it i realized oh this is a Scooby-Doo story. We're going to we're going to find out. This is a gothic. And it's so weird to think of Scooby-Doo as the gothic. But at the end we're going to find out who the villain is. Somebody's mask and it's going to yeah. be revealed. And and the reason we know this is because, you know, it's just like in Scooby-Doo. Remember how Scooby-Doo works? There's a like an old ski resort and they want to revitalize it, but there's a ghost terrorizing the slopes. And then it's old man Willard. I'm just gonna say it's some old they, man with yeah. levers, right. right? What a shocker! As they pull his mask off. Um, right. and, and that apparently the new Scooby Doo's do the opposite. Everything is ghosts, whereas yeah, the it's, original, it's, it's, it's yeah, yeah, the yeah, the yeah, the uh, supernatural is real in the new Scooby Doo as opposed to the old one where nothing was supernatural. I I'm not sure I'm convinced about this flip and its efficacy. Yeah, I think I think it, it was a mistake because. Uh, it just it's interesting because you get the they're almost they are detectives they're not very good detectives because the story but when i was reading this story the haunted tomb i was like i think i know how this is how how this is going to work out and even at the end there's a note (laughs) and it says this same premise was used in the sir arthur conan doyle's the hound of the baskervilles uh, I was like, oh, uh, it's a, it's a, <laughs> instead of a dog with phosphorescence, it's a uh, hyena with phosphorescence. That, and what is it about? Is really interesting. And the reason I think it's connected to today's story, is, it's a white man being told by a um, Indian, about, you know, the curse of this and that. And what what was all behind it was there was this hedge that separated one area from another. It was a boundary. And you had to go around the hedge to the entrance in order to pay your salt tax, right? This is what ultimately led to the dissolution of India as part of the empire, right? It's I saw mar- Lagan. I know all about it, it's man. A, it's the march to the sea, right? <laughs> and and this this whole system was a way to scare the guards off from the being near the tomb so that they could store the salt in the tomb and bring it across at night. And it's like, Oh, it's brilliant. It's a, it's a brilliant little thing. Now, whether this is a true story as claimed in the article or story or not, I, I don't know, but he says, I heard it from a man. (laughs) So (laughs) classic. it's, it is classic. And I just, I think, I think if you, if you do set it outside of its, its setting, which is, it's in a small house, you know, a, a family circle. That word, that phrase, um, and with all this other exotic stuff going out on outside, right? They used to work in the warehouse together, the father and the and the sergeant, right? They used to work in the warehouse together. He was just a slip of a lad, and he's come mm-hmm. back. He's ruddy, r- rubicund is the word to describe his visage. And he's burly, he's tall, <laughs> and he's come back. He's got these sergeant stripes, presumably, on his arm, and uh, a wondrous, horrible story to tell, right? And they mm-hmm. get a little piece of that, that little token, that little monkey's paw. It is a masterful story. 
Yeah. Yeah, I love it. It's one of my favorites. I'm so glad you wanted to talk about it. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Mr. Jimoon. My pleasure. Yeah, that was that was that was a great recording you did. Thank yes. you. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. It was wonderful. <clears throat> well, it's one of those. It's a, the credit really goes to uh, Mr. Jacobs because it's one of those stories. It was just a joy to read. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and mm, it's just so yeah. well constructed and paced and. Even though it's written literally at the start of the 20th century, it's almost, apart from a couple of ref- contemporary references, could have been written yesterday. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just that yeah, sort of freshness. True. and It's very fresh. I mean, I find reading a lot of old stuff, even some old masters, you sort of end up halfway through a sentence and go, what the hell am I? <laughs> <laughs> yeah because you know <laughs> whereas, whereas this was just kind of like oh not one take but damn near of kind mm. of just you know start reading I'll just, I'll just do chapter one. Oh, that one one i'll do chapter two <laughs> i'll just carry on to the end now mm-hmm. <laughs> yes it, it, it's funny because I, I read it with a student and you know every once in a while we have to do a vocab word but you can really pretty much get through like I had to look up that, uh, that, and I can't remember what it's called again. Anti Mikasa? Oh, yeah. Mikasa or whatever. Yeah. yeah. I, I didn't the know. Doilies. What that was. Yeah, I, oh, yeah, doilies. Yeah. Yeah. The lace doily, right? That the uh, wife is chasing the son around with. I just um, want to be very proud that I, yeah, read many <laughs> of those stories. I knew how exactly. Many of you, how many lace doily um, anti Mikasas have you knit? Is my question. <laughs> Oh my gosh. <laughs> my 30, grandma had them all Haven't place. I sent I just... you guys any? <laughs> no. I, I had no idea that they had names. Lace, I just don't lace really knitting of stuff like that you have to do on things that are almost like wires. No, thank you. Okay. Uh, but yes. Oh, my goodness. I, I just I wanted to say that it's it's very easy for kids to read. And that's why if you go online, type in the monkey's paw, you have so many of the responses are... Um, you know, answers to homework that teachers assign it all the time. Like I said, it was in Rose's yeah, literature. Yeah, but still, like still, and they yeah. they assign it to pretty young kids. You know, not not yeah. What did you yeah. say? Grade five for Rose? Fifth grade. That's ten. Ten years yeah. old. Yeah, that's pretty young for. I mean, some of the vocab in here is uh, pretty high. I mean, well, some of it, anyways. But it's so smooth, right? Mm-hmm. It's so smooth. It's it isn't like reading. Poe, where you you really you can't do that at age ten. We we all struggle a little with his vocab. Yeah, the torn whatever it is. Yeah. I, I I had yeah yeah when when I first came across the word torn, I had to look up. Well, what the heck is a torn? Oh, it's a lake in the mountains. Oh, that's lake. cool. See, this is where you're better than me because I never, almost never look at vocab. I didn't know that until just now. I just went, hey, in context, okay, moving on. <laughs> Get to the story. Well, I, you know, if you if you had walked through Scotland and seen, uh, oh, no, that's a lock. Never mind. <laughs> uh, <well>, Switzerland. <laughs> Absolutely. Switzerland. Might have you at the turn, right? <laughs> yep. Pl- pl- I, I mean, there's a, there's a lake up uh, – up in the mountains in Colorado. It isn't called a tarn, but when I saw it, I was like, oh, that's a tarn. I oh, found a tarn. <laughs> wow. Darn. See, you've darn. enriched your life in ways that I've neglected. You've taught me a valuable lesson. Thank you, Paul. <laughs> you and great literature. Yes. All, all credit to Paul. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
There was no reply. The old woman's face was white, her eyes staring and her breath inaudible. On the husband's face was a look such as his friend, the sergeant, might have carried into his first action. Wow, good writing. Genius, yeah. Right? It's a callback. It's a callback. And it's not just like he's scared. But they never, they, he calls her mother and he, uh, and she calls him father, right? They don't have first names. They're just, it's, it is, this it's is the us, family, right? Yeah. It's well, yes. Yeah, so, and it's also just, that's how a family unit is. That's very realistic in terms of when you've had kids around, eventually you just start saying to the, uh, to the kids, well, mm. mom says this, dad says mm. this. And that's right. now my husband and I have never called each other that. So, but <laughs> you have to get, oh, yeah. you get very every man too. You have to get yeah. some overalls on and go pose in front of your house with a pitchfork. And then, uh, you can call, <laughs> call, 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 just send you that. Next week, you're getting the picture. Isn't that, isn't that picture called the American Gothic? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Yep. I don't know who, who painted it, but, I appreciate you guys uh, showing up for this. And yeah, it was uh, fun. Thank, thank you. you. My pleasure. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it was fun. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. But I thought they weren't lit. Oh, uh, only two of them are lit. Oh, two or that. Yeah, You're so, right. Uh, we'll, we'll see how that and I think there's plays this... out in the story. Mm. Okay, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I have to get my elaborate theories started here, okay? <laughs> okay. Rose was saying, I can't wait to hear what Jesse comes up oh, with. Oh, you this. got you got some good stuff coming. Trust me. Uh, yeah. Nice uh, short yeah. story okay. like this I can work over and over and over again. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I don't know how we're going to find enough stuff to talk about. She goes, Hasn't there been TV, radio, and everything? Jesse's going to be all over this. And I went, oh, good point. And then uh, I've got, you know, one of those uh, serial killer murder boards behind me with all the string, red strings connecting a whole bunch of pictures. Nice. (laughs) We need a picture of that, buddy. Oh, shit. I was lying. Get in the mood. (laughs) In the dream. You are falling, lost in the listening distance, as dark locks in. <laughs> Nightfall. Good evening. Tonight we have a special treat for you. A new production of a story that refuses to die. I ask those of you who may have heard it before to warn your loved ones that we are about to present The Monkey's Paw. Oh, that was lovely. Well, I hope I remember how to behave at table. Oh, come now, Sergeant Major. You may find us the barbarians, Jeremy. Manners of the outposts of empire we hear. They're refined beyond anything we could do. Oh, in a sergeant's mess in India, on the frontier. Are you sorry to have left it, sir? Oh, what, the frontier? 
I'm afraid, Herbert, that I've brought too much of it back with me. Oh, <laughs> oh, nothing shows good manners like a, a healthy appetite side oh, adventure. Do us some more. Well, I don't mind if I do. Oh, you've done yourself proud, you two. This house. Well, it's been a struggle. But it's paid for. <laughs> oh, oh. <laughs> oh, but... £200. Uh, I'm going to earn that. Oh, you're working already, lad. I am. I'm apprenticing to be a stationary engineer. More in Meggins. Oh, the old works. It's still going strong. Huge now. Jeremy, you'd not know the place. Oh. And the machinery. Terrifying. I had one look inside. The whirling and banging and sparks <laughs> and smoke. A foreman Smithy says, if you like working at Moore and Megan's, you'll feel at home on a battlefield. <laughs> like Chinese Gordon. Have <laughs> 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 you missed England all these years, Sergeant Major? Missed it? <laughs> oh, Brad's never told you about my family, eh? They weren't as well off as his. Well off. In the county workhouse. There's no job in a fine shop for me. But, yes, we remember our young days fondly, don't we? The anger fades. You've done well in the army. Very well. Well, I'm still breathing, yes. China, Africa, India. Most of all, I'd like to see India. India? Oh, you're better off where you are, lad. There's too much everything, India. There's too many things off the map. Off the map? Here. Here What's that? Oh, small animals, but well, not quite. It's a monkey's paw. Oh, what are you doing with a thing like that? Oh, well, perhaps I shouldn't be showing it. Jeremy, don't, don't put it away. Let's see it. Here, give us a look. You're turning all red. Caught you out, eh? A secret? Oh, secret? Twenty-one years in India. <laughs> Yeah, you remember the upbringing that you and I had, Fred? The Queen, England, Empire, John Wesley and all? Uh -huh. And then suddenly to be plunged into a world where gods have arms like beetles' legs. That, 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 that's blasphemous! <laughs> Sir, will the monkey's fingers work if you pull the tendons? Like a rabbit's foot. Oh, well, I, I'm leaving the table if, if this talk keeps on. Ah, don't get carried away, Dorothy. I, I must tell you. See, I was in India less than a fortnight when I was trapped in the midst of a festival called the Kali Puja. It's the darkest night of the month. Adoration of Kali, wife of Kala, god of death and of time. Only a great slaughter of sheep and goats can appease her. Single saber stroke to lop off the beast's head. Oh, 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 Sergeant Major, please. That, Mrs. Todd, is India. That cannot be all of India. No, no, there is gentleness there, too. But it's the mysteries of India that stay with you. There's no way to shake them. You think you have as you sail up past Aden and the Suez. You feel you're a sensible, no-nonsense Englishman again. And then, out of the blue, in a cottage as cosy as this, the shock of something quite... Quite... Something quite frightful. Like your monkey's paw. I'd rather you forgot it. 
Let's see it again. Just once more. Oh, very well, if you insist. Uh, look at it. It's an ordinary little paw dried to a mummy. May I, sir? <laughs> what, examine it? See if you can find the mystery. Tendon's too dry to move. Well, better look next time. So what's special about it? A spell. Put on it by a holy man, a fakir. Spell? To prove that faith rules our lives. How? He decreed that three people, each in turn, would have three wishes granted by it. Three people, three wishes, and no more. <laughs> did the three people get their wishes? Two did. The third is yet to come. Jeremy, you've not given it a whirl. I have. That was the second. Um, were they... Granted, they were. What were they? Oh, they were small enough. But I shall never tell how they were answered. <laughs> oh, my. Sergeant Major, you are making a fine spoof of it. Even your face has gone white. Yes. And, uh, the first person who wished... was a friend of mine, a Lance Corporal from Aberdeen. I don't know his first two wishes. His third was for death. That's how I got the poor. But you finished with it? And you still keep it? But what good is it now, sir? <laughs> I did have some idea of selling it, but no. Jeremy, if you talk up that monkey's paw with others as convincingly as you've done with us... It's caused enough mischief. If you could have another three wishes, sir, would you want them? No. My God, no. No one must ever ask a wish of this thing again. Now I'll be done with it. Jeremy, what did you do that for? Toss it in the fire. Up and fish it out. Hurry, hurry. Right. Barely scorched. A few heads. Back in the fire, lad. Let it burn. If you don't want it, Jeremy, give it to me. Here, Dad. If you keep it, Fred, don't you blame me for what happens. Fair enough, Jeremy. Oh, don't be a fool. Pitch it on the fire like a sensible fella. How does it work, hmm? What's the magic trick? You're serious? Serious as you, Jeremy. You're the one who convinced us this thing works. <laughs> you hold it in your right hand and make your wish aloud. <laughs> That's all? Except for the consequences. <laughs> what you might do, Fred, dear, wish for another caravans from India for me. <laughs> all the work around this house. If you must <laughs> wish, wish for something sensible. Sensible? I warn you, the spell of the paw is no joke. Oh, sensible. Sensible. Death. <laughs> I, I, I'll put it away. I can't take this seriously now. You will. <laughs> when you discover the joke is on you. Good night. Bye, Jeremy. Uh, come see us again. Hi. Very kind of you. Lovely. Good night. Night. Night.
Shouldn't you be changing your clothes and getting off to the works? More in leggings? Mm. Not an hour yet. Till the midnight shift. I like your Sergeant Major, Fred. Do you know? He's changed. But uh, most of the lad I knew is still there. Any of the lad he knew here, Dad? Oh, <laughs> not bloody likely. Catch me believing a yarn like that. Did you give him anything for it, dear? The monkey's paw. Oh, a trifle. He didn't want to take it, but I made him. Ah, some money banking him. And he took advantage of you. I like him the better for that. He placed me a gun to throw it away. Not bloody likely. Why, we're going to be rich. Now refuse to work nights at Moe and Megan. <laughs> Wish to be a emperor, Freddy. Mm, looks like... Yes, it looks like the... The end of a child. Shouldn't be so greedy on your first wish, Dad. I mean, an emperor is a lot to ask. I don't know what to ask for, that's a fact. Well, if you've got everything you want, I've not. Good. You take it and wish. All that thing in my hand, I couldn't. What about the mortgage, Mum? Dad, have you cleared that? For 200 pounds? Hey, would you like that, Dorothy? Not too grasping? Frivolous? Oh, I don't know when you two are serious. As serious as you, Mum. Do it, Jack. <clears throat> I wish. I wish. Don't anybody giggle. I. I wish for two hundred pounds. No! Was it? What is it, Dad? It moved. What? The monkey's paw. Cool that. Stiff and solid as a walnut, and suddenly... What? It twisted in my hand. But look, there's no money coming out of the wall. Right, look at your wallet, Fred. It's the most sensible place for wish for money to appear. Yeah. Feels no fatter. One pound, two shillings. Well, so much for that. Oh, yeah, but pick up the paw before you step on it. Shall I give it to the cat? But put it on the shelf. As I wish, it twisted my hand like a snake. Nonsense, Fred, it's just your fancy. Well, no, I'm done. <laughs> Give me a shot, all the same. Hmm. Well, come on, Dorothy. Off to bed. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but you will put the cat out when you take off to work. Right. And the light. I will. Night, Mum. Dad. Night. Any of the lad you know here. I can dawdle. I do hope it doesn't rain before Herbert gets off shift and oh. home. What are you looking at? Out window. There's a man out there on the street. 
Never seen a man out there. Oh, he's staring at the house. That's the fourth time he's passed the gate. Hmm. Oh, real tough. And he's coming in. Oh, dear. Answer the door, Freddy, while I get rid of this apron. He's not a lord, Dorothy. Yes, sir. Hey, Mr. Todd. I come from Mo and Megan's. Oh, oh, do come in, won't you? Thank you. <clears throat> My missus. How do you do? Uh, my name's Tilbury. I was asked to call on you. Oh, uh, excuse the mess, uh, uh, Mr. Tilbury. We weren't expecting to sit down. I'll not include more than a He's moment. Come from Moore and Megan's, dear. Oh. Is anything wrong? Nothing's happened to her, but... Yeah, there, Dorothy. Don't jump to conclusions. Mrs. Todd. Mr. Todd. Oh, I'm sorry. He's hurt. He's... Is he hurt? I'm afraid... Aye, he's badly hurt. But he's not in any pain. Oh, thank God. You see, Freddy, it's not so bad. I I thought... Oh, I was afraid. But it's not so bad. He's all right. No, it's not. Your Herbert was caught in the machinery, Mrs. Todd. He was drawn in among the pulleys and the big flywheel. Caught? In the machinery? What's he saying, Fred? Don't believe him. No, he's been such a careful boy, Herbert. Always. Mr. Tubley, they've mistaken him for some other... other... Get him, Fred. Get him. He was the only one left. We lost three babies. We, we all wish we could undo this. It's hard. <clears throat> the firm wishes me to convey their sincere sympathy with you and your great loss, and, and to say that Moore and Megan's disclaim all liability, but in consideration of your son's services, they wish to present you with a certain sum as compensation. Oh. Oh. What? Two hundred pounds. You didn't say two hundred. Here, Mr. Todd. Come back, Dorothy. What are you doing out of bed? What was I doing in bed? Aren't you cold? Does it matter? No. Nothing matters. Yes. It matters that you don't... Don't what? Come back to bed. You catch your death, my dear, wandering about in the middle of the night... Fred, why have we forgotten the paw, the monkey's paw? Yeah, what's the matter? What? What Want it? Want it? You've not destroyed it. I've not touched it. No, why should I? Since I made that wish and dropped it. Where is it? I don't know. Didn't Herbert pick it up? It's not in his pocket. 
We didn't take it. We I didn't... think you... You set, you set it down somewhere in the park. <laughs> oh, oh, I, I, I just now thought of it. Why didn't we before? Think of what? The other two wishes. We only made one. Was that not enough? No. We'll have one more. Did I just thread quickly? We'll wish our boy alive again. Oh, God, you're mad. My wish and what happens at the works at Moe and Megan said nothing. Nothing to do with each other. Now get it. Get it quickly and we... Dorothy, for God's sake. Get it, get it. Get get you it. don't know what wish. you're asking. Come, Come back to me. Oh, we had the first wish granted. Why not the second? A coincidence. Go and get it and wish, friend. Dorothy. Father Herbert has been dead for ten days. He was smashed and pulled apart by those shafts and the flywheel. I could only recognize him by the bits of his clothing. If he was too terrible for anyone to see then, how could you bring him back? Do you think I fear this lost child I bore? I nursed him. I raised him. Am I to fear him now? All right. All right, Dorothy. So be it. He'll go downstairs and ask it for Herbert. Fred, wish for our son. It's foolish and wicked. Do it. As Sergeant Major Morris told you to, hold it in your right hand and wish aloud. But remember, Jeremy warned us of the consequences. The third wish was for... Wish. I wish. My son. Alive. Nothing. Thank God. It didn't even move in my hand. But you wish. Exactly as Jeremy instructed. Then why? Oh, my darling. We can't have what nature won't allow. Come back to bed now, Dorothy. There's a good girl. Come along now. Yes, Fred. I'll be up. Herb.
some animal outside. No, but I don't hear anything. It's our son. It's him. For God's sake, stay here. Don't go down. It's my boy. Look, of course they couldn't get here sooner. The cemetery's two miles away. Dorothy, there's nothing. Don't go. Are you holding me back? Let go. to open the door for him. You can't let it in. Our own son. Afraid of him. Your own son. I'm afraid for you. You didn't see him when they pulled him from the flywheel. And he's been ten days in the earth. Let me go. I'm coming, Herbert. I'm coming. Yes, dear boy, just let me get the bolt off. Bolt, Fred, come down and help me. The bolt's jammed, and I can't open the door to let Herbert in. Second. Third. Third and last. Third and last. Where's it? Where's the monkey's paw? Downstairs. Downstairs. Don't open the door. Put it. The bolt is stuck. Oh. Help me. Oh. Thank you, Paul. Banging in the wind. All so natural. Nothing out of place. See? You wished her but dead. You sent him back to his grave. You wouldn't have wanted him alive. So mutilated and in such agony. Why didn't you wish him alive? And all. Why didn't you? With your last wish. 
wish him more. Oh, oh, God, why, why didn't I? Oh, so natural, nothing out of place. You have just heard The Monkey's Paw, the short story by W. W. Jacobs, dramatized for radio by Len Peterson. Featured tonight were Ruth Springford and Eric House as Mom and Dad Todd. Chris Wiggins as the Sergeant Major. Michael Wincott as Herbert. And Graham Haley as Mr. Tilbury. Our recording engineer is John Jessup, with sound effects by Bill Robinson. The senior script editor is John Douglas, and our production assistant is Doris Buchanan. Nightfall is produced and directed for CBC Radio by Bill Howell. <laughs>